0: question yeah. you guys are all in like a balloon party on my screen oh
1: that... no how do you, you can, do that if you, if you click at the top you can change it it's called together mode change it to large grid and it should put all of us on screen or something <laughs> okay, great. That, that's just how we live
0: i was like man it's a party i'm down for it um <laughs> all right maybe you guys will just stay and party because i don't know if i can figure this out
2: know what your party mode does man
3: Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 76. It is wonderful to have you. Today, we are continuing our Pieces of Cinema Occasional Series with a focus on special effects. And we're going to talk about everything from practical special effects to makeup special effects to digital special effects, uh, CGI special effects, stunts. It's such an important part of what makes cinema, cinema and movies, movies. And we've got a special guest star today, Ashley Stansberry, who herself is a special effects maker artist. So give it up for Ashley.
0: Ooh, thanks, guys. Glad to be here.
3: It's wonderful to have you, Ashley. And actually, as a little tease to what we're going to talk about today, just out of curiosity, how did you get interested in makeup special effects?
0: I have a background in makeup in general. I've been doing it for a long time. And, you know, I started in theater. So, you know, you just kind of do the character makeup. And then all of a sudden you're like, Ray no, I really, really want to make people bleed on screen you know so <laughs> um or make it as realistic as possible anyways so i think that's really kind of how i got interested in it so <laughs> but i started in scenic it's interesting how i flipped over to makeup
3: what's it thank you for being here and yeah uh, of course uh who else is with us today hey it's daniel <laughs> <laughs> hey
4: it's me connelly Cruz, the people's champion
3: hello america
2: i'm here starving hungry
3: tired uh, I want to go back to sleep and finish watching a TV show. In that order. I was going to say, you still have enough energy to uh, be watching Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm while we're recording.
2: Because dude is hilarious. He's funny. Okay, man. I was watching
3: all of these seasons all night. All right. I'm on season four. So don't judge, man. All right. And I'm, uh, I'm Craig, founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. This week, Secret Movie Clubbers, tonight at the Million Dollar Theater, we are doing 35 millimeter print of John Carpenter's The Fog. And it was interesting. The people who owned the rights to that movie were like, don't you want to use our 4K restoration? And I get it. I mean, I totally get it. I, I, they put a lot of money into it. It probably looks as good as it's ever looked. And I said, well, our audience... Really, even if there's wear and tear on the 35 millimeter print, they're going to come because it's a 35 millimeter print of John Carpenter's The Fog. And they were like, OK, but just audience, we are doing it on 35 millimeter film in a movie palace. Saturday, we are doing a three fur at the million dollar movie palace starting around seven thirty. We're doing Donnie Darko. Then we're doing this 80 minute program of horror trailers put together by the American Genre Film Archive. And then we're ending it with Takashi Miike, one of my favorite directors, actually, living directors, Takashi Miyake, His horror movie, Audition, one of his most famous movies, but interestingly, you know, we do Fassbender all the time. He is another guy who I think is now maybe in his late 60s, early 70s, and he has directed 100 feature films. So in a way, what he's what Fassbender would have been if he had lived. So Takashi Miike has lived an additional 30 plus years, and he's made like 120 feature films, and Audition is one of the best of them. And then, uh, next Wednesday, we we are doing Fastbender's Why Does Hair Are Run Amok, one of his great early movies, which is Halloween-themed as much as it is a satire. You'll find out why. Then on Thursday, we're doing a 35-millimeter print of Andre georges Clouseau's Diabolique, an amazing movie from the 50s. I still remember flipping to this movie back when TV was, you had a remote control and you were flipping through cable and it wasn't Roku or streaming. And it was on Bravo, back when Bravo was about to date myself. In the 90s, Bravo was actually about international. National Cinema and they were showing Diabolique. And I was like, what is this movie? I'm fascinated. And I watched it all the way to the end on a weekday night, and the ending shocked me. I thought it was incredible. We're doing that on October the 14th. So come join us. And as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com and find out everything we're doing on Eventbrite, which is where we sell our tickets. Just Google Secret Movie Club and Eventbrite. And you can go to our website, secretmovieclub.com. We have many announcements, and we would love to have you because Secret Movie Club is about a community of movie makers and movie lovers and we would love to have you be a part of it. We've been doing this series where we look at different aspects of how you make a movie. We've done producing. We've done writing. We've done sound. We've done cinematography. uh, We've done a lot. Today we're doing special effects. And one of the things of cinema and cinema can do a lot of stuff. Movies can do a lot of stuff. They can uh, show us our lives. They can show us cultures and lives that we don't know. And they give us understanding and empathy. But one of the biggest things they do is they can transport us to worlds, that are full of imagination and spectacle and horror and action. They let us watch stories that, uh, when it's with real actors and great effects, we believe are happening. And they put us into a story that, you know, it does that weird thing that movies can do. We know we're safe because we're sitting on our couch watching it. But at the same time, we're seeing a whole other world that can scare us or fill us with wonder or fill us with this great spectacle. And special effects are... Hugely important. So the history of special effects in cinema is too big to get into, but from the very beginning of silent films, when somebody created a costume or or made someone fly, or George Melies, one of the earliest silent filmmakers, uh, his famous movie, A Trip to the Moon, he used special effects to do this short film about astronauts that go to the moon in like 1910, and the moon was famously someone's face, and they just put makeup on the face, and the rocket was in the eye, and that was just this very famous early image, and everybody loved it, because... They were watching all this movement. And then there were like creatures that lived on the moon that had pitchforks, I remember, and poked everybody in the butt. And they were like, ah. seeing humans And now suddenly cut to 110 years later, and we're watching these Marvel movies with just a thousand people on screen who are all computer generated, having these battles in the sky and in space and everything in between. One of the biggest things, which maybe hit its apex in the 80s, were practical effects and makeup effects where somebody really was a demon or someone's head really would go from a real head to a prop head that exploded. And you'd be like, ah, why do you think special effects are so important in movies? And what do you think are the characteristics of good special effects?
0: I mean, man, you pretty much covered it. I mean, it really just takes you from somebody on screen acting like just that extra little bit to another world, basically, right? Trying to get your actors and, you know, it helps them as well, you know, get into their character, get them, you know, into their world. If they believe it, they're in it, you know, the audience usually follows suit, I feel like. So I think it just gives you that little extra jump you need into that world that you're creating. It's so funny you say Marvel because I feel like with makeup effects anyways, you know, the blend between CGI and makeup has been a big deal these days, which is really nice. So um, it's a great way to show how we can work all work together and still, you know, have our separate departments and still be practical. Cause pr- I think practical effects are still always going to be the best, but CGI really, you know, obviously it's a thing these days.
3: As someone whose art is practical, what has it been like for you to practice your practical art but have to have the consideration that when you're all done someone's going to be weaving it with animation and post effects and things on a computer. What are some of the considerations you've had to deal with so that it is seamless and you do feel like you, you're you getting your best work out there?
0: It's working very closely like collaborating with the CGI artists yes. and knowing exactly what they're expecting to see on screen my favorite example of that is in um, in game like the the makeup artist that did the old age wait so i guess spoilers spoilers aren't a thing <laughs> yeah, I, spoilers, <laughs> I was like spoilers it's been like it's how been, many years it's been like me? a year and a half okay <laughs> um, but you know in in game with captain america they did do a physical old age makeup on him at the end of the movie however they did go through and do cgi on top of that they also you know with Paul Bettany as vision it's very similar to that too. So I think it's just working very closely with your you know CGI artists. I mean I would say you know what what do they need from us to create what they need for them and vice versa. It's a very very close working relationship.
3: What do you think the role of special effects is in that collaborative effort of making a great movie?
4: Yeah, I think it's just it's adding to it. It's not overtaking it. You want that blend is always going to be the best. I saw like an Instagram post. I see like a little movie things on there. When I'm scrolling around. It was about like a stunt from John Wick 3. It's a motorcycle fight scene where they're on these motorcycles. And apparently they did not film it on, on actual motorcycles. They were on these little motorcycle props that kind of moved around this green area. But the fight itself was totally real in the sense that they were moving the actors around and they were fighting in between these little things moving around. And somebody somebody had like commented or posted it in the context of like, it's not real at all. And I and I think that's maybe like a little um I think it's that blend that makes it work. You know, you have that real fighting and maybe the background is fake, but you see the real fighting and I think that elevates it. Or I love that effect that the Mandalorian has been pioneering that sort of digital rear projection with the LED screens because I think that's going to be a great additive to exactly something like that because it's just going to give the actors more to work with and it's going to, again, I do think there's something about our eyes. We know when something isn't there or is there and especially as time goes on and things get better when we look at older stuff. You can always tell when something's a practical effect, but it looks... The way it's dated is dated differently than digital non practical effects. They date differently, and practical still dates, but it dates, I think, a lot better.
0: I agree, yeah. (laughs) Especially it's 80s horror. 80s horror, for sure, I feel like is the case. (laughs) Which,
3: in a lot of ways, when you think about John Carpenter's The Thing, probably the best practical effects maybe ever. I think You so. really <laughs> feel the 80s was this apex of... Practical effects, magic, and magistry.
2: Well, they're part of the storyline. If there weren't all effects, then what would be? just be? this sticks laying around? A movie that I really appreciate with good practical effects is there, there's a movie in Hong Kong called Spooky Encounters, aka Encounters of the Spooky Kind. It's a Samoha movie. Uh, it's a mixture of horror, kung fu, and comedy. And one of the scenes is with Samu fighting a zombie which is really, really funny. And also, wow, I never thought I'd see that. And the makeup for the zombie, the zombie face, is probably better than, than what we have uh, as zombies here because their face is more dead and more bony and more, you know, like um, like dry.
3: Yeah, decayed, desiccated.
2: Decayed, yeah, more, more decayed. I like uh, zombies over here because over there, I guess they take
3: it more accurately yeah george romero once said something that i thought was fascinating where he said someone asked him if he what he thought about slow moving zombies versus fast moving zombies and he was like well of course they have to be slow moving i think we've even talked about this because he was like those bodies have been decaying so the notion that they could run (laughs) when their
1: muscles and tissue and bones totally
4: unrealistic that these dead people could run
1: (laughs) there's this obsessive nature (laughs) in film conversation to distinguish special effects is too Different things with between practical and computer generated, but I think at their best there is a blend that we don't notice. You know, you think of something like Mad Max: Fury Road that is famously a lot of real stunts, a lot of real things. But that movie is built on really incredible computer effects artists that are that are hiding everything that is needs to be hidden to tell the story better. And I think everyone's right that it's all about storytelling, and it's different types of artistry at work. And I think. At its best, it can be the singular thing that operates because it's so good that it doesn't need the assistance, whether that's digitally or practically, or you have this blend where you're not aware. that Like the John Wick thing, I had no idea that that was uh, the way that was shot, but it was shot in a way that they could get the performance and the physicality of the fight, which was more important than the motorcycle being real. Because it still feels real, but your focus is not on... Do these wheels look realistic touching the ground? Your focus is on this insane. Is that a real background? Yeah. And I think that's maybe at its best. So I think we we are all, probably all of us, guilty of that concept of, uh, you know, practical is better. And I, I practical has an incredible look. And I think there's stakes in you feel emotionally as an audience member when you know something's real. Mission Impossible, for example, there's just something about knowing that what you're watching is real. But even that, there's so much hidden that you don't realize is hidden. I think that's kind of the genius is when I can't tell what you're tricking me with. Because you look at like something like the 80s with like Star Wars, and a lot of the best work in that is, is just the ways people creatively had to come up with solutions to show things that can't exist. And so I think it's a, a big testament to the artistry on both sides and that unique amalgamation of working together. And I think you get someone in, in modern settings that's doing that really well, Guillermo del Toro and something like Pants Labyrinth or Crimson Peak, where he's he's obsessed with practical monsters, and then uses very clever CGI to sort of stitch things he can't pull off. I think about the Pale Man a lot because it gave me a lot of nightmares as a teenager. (laughs) But it's a sort of genius move of this horrifying looking thing, but also has these very clever, and I don't think you can tell what's real and what's CGI. I think that speaks a lot to like, those are artists working together at like the top of their game. You have animatronics, you have an actor, and you have practical and computer generated effects. And I think there's such a cool... I don't know, I think the art of it has to be discussed because I think often it's thrown to the back burner of like, oh, they pulled this off practically or they had to resort to CGI because I think they're both very different, but also like they're both art in their own sense uh, at their best. At their worst, you get stuff that's, you know, whatever. But I think even looking back, like Connor was saying, like I love going back to like, especially 90s movies where they're trying to figure it out because you get something like, uh, I think about the original Resident Evil movie and it looks, it looks so bad, but I also love that in the same way that like old practical things that have been like really weird, but also at the same time you watch American werewolf in London. And that transformation scene is as stunning today as it was in the eighties because of what they were able to pull off. So I
3: think like so many things, if you really are dedicated to something, you start to notice what it can do well. And you say, this can do this really, really well. And what I appreciate about CGI is I think sometimes you can actually do crazier stunts because you can erase out the cables, Or you can do somebody falling from a building and they really fall and it looks like they hit the ground, which is something you used to never be able to do. You'd have to cut and then have them on the ground or, you know, and now you can do this thing where you have plates. And I think that CGI, sort of picking up on what many of you were saying, I think it's reductive and not helpful to be like, oh, CGI, I wish it was all practical because so many movies you love probably have CGI that you didn't even know had CGI. And it's that weird thing that when a special effects person does their job really, really well, they've ironically erased their artistry, (laughs) and you don't even know that they did it because you just buy the illusion. That being said and acknowledged, I have this, this feeling or theory about special effects that in the same way that when you walk into a cathedral that was built in the Middle Ages, when you walk into Notre Dame, and you realize that it took people 30 years to build that thing, and some people died while they were building it, or you look at the Sistine Chapel and you realize that Michelangelo took 10 years, you feel that human effort. And I think when you see Stan Winston or Rick Baker or makeup effects on a person, you feel... They spend hours on that, days on that, months on that. And it's a this wonderful feeling. And my ethos has always been to the extent that the budget can afford practical effects and practical stunts and practical makeup, I would rather go that route. But then I would love to use CGI in a way where maybe I can do something or seamlessly do something that would be way too dangerous. To do now, you know, and the CGI can help me to do it, to sell the illusion. That's sort of where I stand on it. And then just as a way of name checking, you know, something as basic as Marlon Brando's makeup in The Godfather. I always come back to this, but he's 43 in that role or 44, and you think he's the 68 year old patriarch of this family. So something as simple as, not simple at all, but Dick Smith finding a way to make a gorgeous 48-year-old Marlon Brando still look like a 68-year-old and then coupled with Marlon Brando's acting, you're just, I think this guy is 70 years old. And when you're told that he's 22 years younger, you're like, holy moly. What are some of your favorite examples in movies of uh, special makeup effects or special effects?
0: I really love when you can realistically pull something off. Of course, Guillermo del Toro always and forever will be like the master of amazing creatures and bringing that practical effects, you know, to the forefront and being very particular about it which is nice it's sometimes we get pushed to the background unfortunately you know when people are thinking about makeup and stuff like that he really appreciates it um and really spends the time on it and it shows i think in his movies but really you know it's so funny most people don't think about some of the things um a good example Kazu, who really, he came up with Rick Baker. He did The Grinch, you know, with Rick Baker as well. He's just absolutely amazing. He did Doctor's Hour. So things like that. He's very much more in the absolute realistic makeup genre, I guess. Making people and transforming them completely with makeup, I guess, is really his thing. And my favorite is Bombshell, yes. So the transformation with uh, Charlize, like nobody would really know What he did to transform her makeup wise, he created this nasal piece that went up into her nose that changed the shape of her actual nose, stuff like that. Like nobody would ever know. (laughs) And, you know, with prosthetics on top of that and everything, it really transforms her. And I feel like those subtle things, especially with him, gosh, Darkest Hour is so good on Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman's just like... The most amazing transformative actors, and I think. Totally, yeah. <laughs> but those little things that you just don't know, or don't know why or how they did that to make her look a certain way. I think that Kazu is really in the forefront. And they brought him out of retirement. Gary Oldman brought Kazu out of retirement. Thank goodness. <laughs> so now we have him back for a little while longer. <laughs> and did he
1: also do the prosthetics for um, Jessica and Levitt and Looper? Yes, I believe he did. It's the same type of thing where it's it's like a something's different, but you can't piece it together and i think that's like kind of incredible it's
0: so subtle that you wouldn't really notice it yeah
1: and if you didn't know the actor you would you'd have no idea and
0: i just like when nobody could tell that's my favorite i think
2: it's just so real i gotta give it to poltergeist poltergeist has some pretty damn good special effects because i put in the pre-show for dark spielberg and i'm watching a trail like damn that's some pretty good stuff. That how they pull some of those stuff off, especially where the the demon ghost comes out of the closet. That was amazing. And also the corpses that comes out of the pool, which is real. Or when
3: he rips off his face. That's such a great way. He just starts digging into his face and then rips it off. It's the skeleton. You're like, whoa.
2: Yeah, it's just is cool. And I I, I may mean, like the scene where she, where she she's in the pool, and then the dead bodies come out of there. Like, holy crap! And then. That, those were real, real corpses they used for the movie. I, I don't know how they got that or how they pulled it off. Uh, I want to say Spielberg uh, might have done something with it because uh, he went a little crazy on this picture. Are
3: you accusing Steven Spielberg of being a grave robber?
2: I don't know. You tell me, Craig. <laughs> you love Spielberg. He worships Spielberg.
4: There's two things. On the, uh, on the practical side, uh, my favorite movie ever, The Evil Dead, is just a treat of practical hyper low budget special effects they're using oatmeal in certain scenes but you just you buy it part of it's just it's just everything so grimy that it works but there's just so much love and ingenuity put into that film in every form i I love it's such a simple effect but the mirror water effect when they cut to bruce campbell looking in the mirror and he touches it and it ripples like water if you think about it for longer than a moment you kind of figure out how they did it (laughs) They took the frame from the painting, put it around some water, and sort of angled Bruce Campbell and the camera in a way so the water obviously wasn't falling out of the mirror. Kind of on the opposite end, I think one of the things that CG allows us to do, maybe more than practical does, is really great like creature non-human performances for fantasy and sci-fi and, and stuff films. Obviously, you have a, uh, have several examples of this in, in Endgame, which Ashley mentioned earlier with Josh Brolin as Thanos and Sean Gunn slash Bradley Cooper as Rocket Raccoon. But I think probably the best performance, the one that made that kind of performance capture stuff like an art form. And one of those things where I almost wonder if there should be like a recognition even more of it is Andy Serkis' Gollum is the kind of thing that you couldn't, that's one thing that I think benefited from being in CGI. Cause 20 years before that it would have been like a little dude in like it kind of makeup or whatever or it would have been like a puppet it would have had its own charm and would have done its own thing but that performance from Andy Serkis is a, is a real full performance and you're getting every part of it through the CGI and then being able to essentially rotoscope more or less his expressions and his emotions onto this computer creature and Peter
1: Jackson's just so good at shooting it that you just totally buy it. I remember a lot as a kid, Hellraiser was like one of the most jarring things I'd ever seen. Specifically, like the sequence of the one guy in the chains. I can't remember what part of the movie he's in, but just like his face is sort of like flayed open and he's speaking. Just really stuck with me as a thing. And going to Game With El Toro, I think Hellboy, like Ron Perlman's transformation in that is is like insane. Every expression reads and like he looks unconstructed by it somehow. An underrated one from a recent rewatch. I think Danny DeVito in Batman Returns is up there. Society as a film is um, something. And I also wrote down another one that freaked me out. Gary Oldman in Hannibal as like the survivor. It was insanely jarring. And then I think maybe one of the best transformations is Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder.
0: It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that was only fun.
1: I I would love uh, just a full... Feature-length documentary on that. Not to
4: move aside, but speaking of Tom Cruise, and, and we really touch on stunts. I know, Ashley, you said you worked with a stuntman recently?
0: I did. Um, It's really interesting um, when you kind of branch out into more of the creatures, because you really do, you work more closely with the actor and the stunt department, rather than maybe like on the other side with the CGI and, you know, those people. I did. I had a creature. Um, I can't tell you about it because i <laughs> <the laughs> But it, it was fun because, you know, you you create the suit, created the, the headpiece. You know, we've got gloves. You know, we've got all sorts of things on this actor to make him this creature. Then you work very closely with the stunt guy. You know, he has what he needs to do as far as the movement with the script and the storyline, what this creature needs to be able to do. And, you know, it's working very closely because, you know, like, hey, you know, maybe he shouldn't jump off this seven foot rock because his head you know his mask head weighs this much and could go flying off the actor safety concerns like that and limitations with what you're working with so it was fun to work with him though it was great like you know what can we do within the suit and try to push it as much as we can you know safely (laughs) it
4: was was, was tom cruise you're making you're making a, a what's the wolf character from marvel he's in the mcu as as uh i should know this uh, uh no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's fine.
0: I will you know, it's so funny because I will say like the actor has so much to do with it too, right? So, you know, you get That's a true. great yeah. creature actor which, you know, all-time fave would be Doug Jones, somebody like that. He just knows how to move and knows his limitations, so it's really a very closely collaborative process with the creature, the stunt actor, you know, the actor in the suit, all working together to try to make what you need to happen, happen, practically.
3: And and this is, the it's just me, and again, there, there are many movies where they're total CGI sequences and the audience has a blast. I think the human brain knows when a stunt really happened and knows when it didn't and one of the things that's always interesting to me is that yes cgi can accomplish crazy stunts you would never see but it doesn't feel like there's stakes because you know it's not really somebody jumping car to car you know it's not somebody flying through the air and i think in terms of practical stunts Edwin often brings this up, but sometimes there's nothing more deliriously amazing to me than watching a Jackie Chan movie and all the Hong Kong stunt performers that do their own stunts. No, absolutely. But when I watched police story, police story has this, uh, two sequences, one at the beginning where there's a car chase through a shanty town. And it really is cars just destroying houses as they go down a hill. And you're like, what the, and you see people running and jumping out of the houses and the cars, And it's just this extended sequence that's just really well thought out. And I think that comes from the tradition of Buster Keaton. And when you see Buster Keaton really on a train or really, uh, you know, doing like, you know, a house falling on him. And then at the end of police story, there's this fight in a mall where these actors are just going through glass and they're going through glass display cases. And then it culminates in Jackie Chan repelling down this glass chandelier that explodes as he's doing it. And then he lets go and he falls into glass. Display cases. And you're like, did anybody die on this? No, they just got hurt. And (laughs) then you watch the behind the scenes and you see people really get messed up. And you you felt it. And I know this is gonna be contradictory. I don't think it's worth a stunt person losing their life ever, 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 ever. It's never worth that. Ever. But when you have stunts that, you know, Fury Road is a great example of this. They practice those stunts for a year so that they would be safe and then you watch these folks rappelling into trucks on these bendable like stilts and you're like what is going on and i just i really appreciate that
4: i mentioned this on our calendar episode a couple like however long ago it would have been what is time anymore (laughs) but bruce campbell and evil dead 2 doing some of the you mentioned buster keaton the moments when he flips himself he grabs his head from underneath himself and flips himself the other whole way around nuts how you, how you do something like that and then tom cruise obviously is the reigning king he will die for our sins he will, <laughs> he will do increasingly dangerous stuff until he dies and there's i think there's something in his contract that says if he dies they will use the footage and incorporate the character's death into the plot
3: i feel like he would
0: do that actually <laughs>
3: <laughs> let's uh, flip it on its head because we're movie makers here. When do you think makeup and special effects don't work? What are some examples to you of like, that's not how it should be done.
4: Oh, interesting. Talk sh- about your contemporaries. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think like, cause I always feel like it's a good idea. It's so hard to say because you're like, that's what I do. Why would I not want to? <laughs> when I think about it, something like that to avoid when people go straight to CGI instead of doing any practical effects. My perfect example would be cats. I I just, (laughs) like, nobody should do that ever. Um, They really miss an opportunity. I know they had a little bit of makeup on, but if you've ever looked and seen some of the makeup tests, they're absolutely stunning makeups that they did on their faces with the fur and the prosthetics and stuff like that. And
4: that that feels like it was the appeal. They just totally robbed the appeal of what that stage show was The cat stage show was a very horny stage show yeah people yeah. dressed up like kitty cats and i think that's what people wanted
0: yeah and i feel like they tried to make them realistic where it's not exactly what was the point of it i don't know i just feel like when you do something like that and completely go the opposite direction without you know regard to what it originally should have been or was, you know, and what the charm of the original was like, like you were saying, Connor, cats. I feel like when you take that away, it just doesn't work. Maybe we're just not there yet with the CGI effects for cat, something like cats or, you know, I don't, I don't know. It just didn't have any grounding in reality.
3: On some level, the artifice is important. The theatricality is important, just in the same way that it can be super impressive where the work is seamless, sometimes you like to revel in the pageantry and the mastery of the work. I think a lot of us are okay being like, I know that's makeup, but it's so fun to look at. Movies are always this weird blend of knowing when to be theatrical, which I would define as sort of like big and artificial and when to be totally realistic. But that's an art in and of itself.
0: And and when you go too far one way or the other, you just lose that base of reality. Obviously, it's a balance. I feel like movies in general are just one huge level of balance and collaboration with everybody to make it work, you know? I just, I really, cats, man. We can do that better. We can absolutely do that better.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is perfect. (laughs) The prequel slash sequel to The Thing which I talked about before. I watched it. I hated every minute of it. It's effects. Crap. It's full of crap. How can you take a film and destroy what it created in the first and ruin it by doing these terrible CGI effects that are so bad, it looks cheap to me.
4: That's even worse than that because I think we've been over this before. They did practical effects for the movie and then replaced them. It wasn't like a thing where they it was additive. It was more like more of a replacement.
2: Well, whoever idea that was should burn in hell for destroying art.
4: I think something that always gets me a little bit, and I can see the positive and negative side of it. I thought about there's that movie Foxcatcher from a few years ago, which I actually liked. Quite a bit. Yeah,
3: Steve Carell, Channing Tatum, Mark Ruffalo.
4: Yeah, and Steve Carell specifically had a very transformative face, and I think sometimes I can personally find that a little distracting, especially like I'm not like a stickler for like I hate when people are like that guy doesn't even look like that guy. I'm like who cares? (laughs) Like literally, I couldn't care less. As long as they're able to give a performance, that makes me believe they're that person while I'm seeing them. And I think sometimes those kind of transformative makeup effects, I sometimes question, I see the positive in it. I think there's there's examples, some of the examples Ashley gave that can be very good. And I'm not even criticizing Foxcatcher that much for it because they're, they're, they're pretty okay. You, you forget about it eventually. But I do sometimes wonder if there's times where you need less in general like not necessarily less digital versus practical, but just less in general, because you're maybe overpowering what the character, you know, like let the actor be that character. He doesn't need like a weird hook nose, like he's Danny DeVito in Batman Returns in order to convince me he's this guy who trains Wrestleman.
1: I think the most interesting thing that's happening right now at a modern movie aesthetic is that the decision between practical and digital when practical is an option, is not a budgetary or time restriction anymore because- you hear all these horror stories about these insane crunch time hours that studios are having to hire multiple post houses to create effects because they need to come out super fast. And the cost of them is so astronomical that it's doubling the price of movies. So there's this weird divide. I think there's this general maybe idea that digital is cheaper. And I don't think that's the case anymore, especially because the type of stuff that's happening. Like if you like a, you finish like a Marvel movie and there's like, Six or seven post houses listed with hundreds of thousands of people working on them because it has to it has to be fast and you get these weird discrepancies too because you have post houses that are very skilled in one thing or you have multiple post houses working on the same scene but in like different splits so there's like this very odd in some films discrepancy between the quality of different animation I think Cats is is, is interesting because of that because its DCP was updated to theaters because they had to go do another pass because pe- actors' rings and like tennis shoes were still <laughs> left. So they had to update the movie in theaters with the DCP. They were talking about how like, I think they thought it would be this cost-effective maneuver that ended up costing so much more money than doing the makeup and uh, effects on it. I, I think that argument is it, really interesting because I think the artists doing them, they're not being given the time they need to do them. They're f- having to contend with other post houses, other people doing them, so they have to kind of figure out a blend now because they can't have one that looks this way that's maybe stunning and this other way that looks different because you're cutting between these things. I'll be curious to see as things go forward if that continues to be the trend because the the cost for CGI is, I think, impractical or not this crazy offset anymore. It's potentially more expensive to do computers in some cases because you need a thousand people to do this thing. I'm exaggerating, but so I'm curious to see if there's any type of divide when creative control is given to make a decision based on what the filmmaker wants versus what is necessitated by cost.
2: Ari Aster does it. Midsummer, Yeah, A24, it gives him free range to do whatever he wants, and I'm I'm glad he's sticking to practical effects because that will make his movies much scarier
3: more. He's a good example, though, of the combination of CGI and practical effects, actually. I think he gets the balance just about right. I think that probably the best effects for me are when they come out of story. As I get older, I realize more and more in an exciting way. And I I hope I can communicate this to people because I know how it could sound to someone younger. As I get older and older, I realize the story is everything. And if you're telling this really fascinating story... And the audience is on the edge of their seats. And you're just really making sure that that story has twists and turns and what's this and oh my goodness. Then you figure out effects to tell that story. And I think it's amazing. I think that if you go the other way where you're like, wouldn't this be cool? Wouldn't that be cool? I think there's a place for that, for like the subconscious imagery because movies are imagery. But I think there are some films I see where there's a lot of visual eye candy And I'm like, whoa, but there's just no story there. And I just don't know that anyone will remember the amazing effects work if it wasn't married to an amazing story moment or an amazing character moment. And so I think if you want to have special effects that sing, you want to marry them to an incredible character or story beat, and then I think everyone's going to remember it. That's just my thoughts on it.
0: I completely agree. (laughs) Just because you can doesn't mean you should.
3: (laughs) As somebody who is a working professional in special effects today any final words of wisdom you want to impart on our audience? No,
0: just enjoy it. We all work really hard. I just, just enjoy the fun, special effects and the collaborative, you know, just think of how many people had to work together and, Use all their creative talents to create that like special moment that you see on screen. Just enjoy it. That's what we we want you to do. So I feel like that's just really nice. (laughs) Actually,
4: if you had any like advice for anybody who is starting out, not necessarily on a career path, but on a technique or practical path, if you had like one core single piece of advice to give somebody who is starting out doing you know effects,
0: just practice, practice, practice. Like even if you don't know what you're doing and you don't have materials that you know the professionals use you can be so creative with what you have at home just use your imagination and your creative skills and just like keep on trucking that's how people make different come up with different glues and different you know sealers and ways to do different things you know they're just inventing keep being creative and trying to do what you want to do i guess i don't know (laughs) it's terrible
3: (laughs) but no it's wonderful
1: Pop culture, final thoughts. Speaking of film workers in the film world, there is a vote, which I think by the time this airs, will have already gone to vote. But a lot of the below the line workers who sort of make up the production of the film and make the things that we love and take in are voting on a strike to change a lot of the way that film and television production works from hours to turnover times to pay. And it's... These very minimal asks that fundamentally change these people who are giving up incredible amounts of their time to help make the things that we love. And I think educating yourself and trying to see if, especially if you have friends who are working on it, ways you can support or become educated within that would be very valuable. Because I think it's going to be very important and will likely cause, I think the vote is to start a strike that would fundamentally stop production on everything. Because it is it is every worker that helps create these things essentially and is a valuable thing. I also found this very cool resource that launched uh, a few weeks ago. It's called the Black Film Archive. And it is essentially this website, blackfilmarchive.com. The woman who created it, My Cade, calls it a living register of black films that showcases movies from 1950 to 1979 that are available on streaming. This is very cool resource of broken by decade by genre of this insane amount of wealth that we can find to watch to sort of expand our film knowledge of stuff that's maybe been dismissed or overlooked. And it's a very cool thing. And finally, went to Halloween Horror Nights as... We do every year a thing that I deeply love, but I'll let Connor and Ashley talk about it more in depth.
4: Yeah, I went to it. We both went to it last night. We never really got to meet up. We kind of <laughs> a singles group and a couples group. Daniel was there with his wife and other couples and me and Brian Robert and Casey Young and my friend Paul Immerman. We're all there
1: as the boys, the bachelor boys. If you don't meet up at the beginning, it is near impossible to orchestrate. 100%. Because yeah. once you're in a line, there's no, yeah. you'll
4: wait an hour for someone. <laughs> Me, Bri, and Casey did all six of the mazes and the terror tram. Really fun stuff. Ashley was working on the scare zone outside of Bride of Frankenstein, uh, working on Wolf Girls.
0: Yep, the Wolf Girls. Yeah, my werewolf girls. Love them.
4: And uh, it was a great time. <laughs> I always get to stock up on t-shirts. Thank you, Horror Nights. My feet are very, very tired. We walked like 13,000 steps, I think. I realized... After getting there after for a couple hours, I had a butter beer and a regular beer like two handed at the Hogwarts. And I realized I had only eaten a granola bar that day. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but then me and Casey got like $30 worth of Taco Bell on the way home. So it was,
1: it was, it was great. As a side note, <laughs> this was the first year to my knowledge that the Harry Potter land was open. I'd never been to Universal not during this.
0: They do it in Japan. This is the first year at Hollywood that they have had it open. Yes.
1: It seems like a thing they should do. Like, I feel like Harry Potter's kind of ripe for make that part of the score thing and having the shops open just a moneymaker.
0: 100% don't understand why they don't capitalize on that. We could have had death eaters. We could yeah. have had pumpkins everywhere. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's a missed opportunity. Hopefully in the future they can sort that out.
1: I had never been. So I thought, and I still haven't really been cause I just walked
4: through it, but it was uh, very cool. I think that's a Joanne decision. I think she's, she's, she's objected to associating Harry Potter with Halloween horror nights, I guess.
0: That was originally the thing. It's interesting though. We'll see how it ends up.
4: <laughs> and also, you can watch me play video games at Twitch.tv. So kind of crazy. I didn't
2: do shit. I just keep buying movies, cleaning the theater, popcorn machine. Lance, owner of the Los Feliz Three, gave me two giant ass posters. One of them is Lost Highway and War of the Worlds, which are hanging. At the club, had this very moment. <laughs> Thanks to Craig for letting me put them up. Thanks, Craig. Now people get to see two great movie posters from uh, back when it first came out. So that was really nice of you, man. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can see me work at Los Feliz 3
3: whenever I'm there. And I'll give you popcorn. And uh, like the uh, season premiere of Dallas from the 80s that shocked everyone, Edwin woke up and that whole season was a dream. So, Edwin... <laughs> We'll, we'll see if those posters get hung what up. We are about? They're, they're They're already up, Craig. I, I, don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. I like how this is recorded because this is just vocal proof of how Edwin's trying to gaslight me and force me into a corner and how I'm rejecting his frame. And I'm going to retain my agency and free will and make a decision about that later on. I just
1: can't believe Connor got drunk and tore them down. Oh, that's right.
3: Thank you, Daniel. That was
1: crazy. It's tough to watch.
2: There's <laughs> a bunch of monsters. Because you can't
1: get free things like a giant
2: ass
3: poster of Lost Highway. I'm only
4: leaving up a third of Lost the Highway poster because it's,
3: it's only a third of it's good. Uh, my family took a three day vacation and I was so glad to do it. And when you guys have families or if you have families or if you don't, I think every year just getting out of Dodge and spending a few days and not thinking about anything other than your personal relationships and relaxing and recharging is actually good for everything. We rented this house in Santa Barbara that we got for a great rate because we just did it Sunday, Monday, Tuesday when nobody would, I guess, rent a house that we didn't do the weekend thing. And I went to a bookstore and got my kids one of my favorite children's books, Ferdinand about the bull, which was illustrated in the 1930s in this amazing style about a pacifist bull who doesn't want a bullfight. And then I also got a Tintin comic because I remember reading Tintin when I was in elementary school and I got Tintin and the Blue Lotus and I open it up for my four year old son. I'm like, this is going to be great. And. And the opening of Tintin and the Blue Lotus is like, in the previous episode, Tintin went up against an opium ring and uh, (laughs) was able to jail all the opium dealers except for the mysterious leader. And now he is resting in Shanghai. And I was like, oh man, I forgot that back in the day in the thirties, they didn't talk down to kids. Tintin and Snowy just full on took on an international opium ring. And I looked at my son and I was like, this is why Tintin is awesome. And my son was like, what's an opium ring? And I'm like... You're going to find out And so uh, we read a little (laughs) Tintin And uh, those books Look there's a lot we got to unpack about Tintin uh, There's a lot that doesn't work There's a lot of French view of the world An imperialist French view Of the world from the 1930s That uh, does not hold but the Adventure of this kid and his dog Just adventure after Adventure and th- in this one there are these Darts called the darts of madness And if you get hit with them you just go Crazy and then you can't return And someone sacrifices for Tintin And goes crazy and I don't know how It's going to end we're in the middle of it but it's. It's like Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I mean, probably no surprise why Spielberg did the Tintin movie. It's just a kind of thirty-nine steps adventure after adventure storytelling. That's a lot of fun.
1: Maybe that's why the sequels held up because they want to adapt that storyline. The Opium guys
4: all these years, and still no another Tintin. How come, Peter Jackson? I think Daniel,
0: we're <laughs> uh, knee-deep in strike talks in my my world right now. So I'm not in the union just yet, but I'm working that way. So. Thanks to everybody who's trying to get us better time and all that good stuff. It's, we work hard. (laughs) Yeah. I guess on a a more lighthearted, positive note, Halloween's coming. Horror nights. I don't know. It's all fun. We're excited about making monsters. And
3: I want to wrap this episode by thanking Ashley Stansberry. You can follow her on Instagram at A Stans Makeup. Alpha Sierra Tango Alpha Nevada Sierra. Makeup. I won't do that. You know how to do that. So, A stands makeup. And Ashley, thank you so much for just imparting your wealth of knowledge. So let's give it up for Ashley. Thanks, guys. And as always, this episode was edited by our Chief Creative Content Officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. As always, the reason it's entertaining is because we have Daniel Ott and Edwin Gomez and Connor adding their love of cinema. And just their individual takes on things And uh, audience You know we're a community of movie lovers And movie makers we'd love for you to, to join the conversation and celebrate Cinema and keep the flame of cinema Alive and move it forward so you can Find out about all we do on secretmovieclub.com You can come to any of our live Events where we're doing movies in great Movie theaters on film whenever we Can by going to Eventbrite and getting Tickets and uh, you can write Us at community at secretmovieclub.com And the next episode you're going to hear is another defend this movie where you knew it had to happen. Edward Caesar Gomez and me, Craig Hamill yeah. are going to go head to head about tried. Todd Phillips, wildly popular Joker starring Joaquin Phoenix. You mean greatest motion picture ever
2: made? Yeah, Craig, I've been waiting for this day since the beginning of the time. This is the clash of the Titans. Man versus God. Wow. Who are
3: you in that? I'm God. You're the the man. As you hear the humility in Edwin's voice, you know, we'll get more into it. I am not a fan of Joker. Edwin is a huge fan of Joker. What is indisputable is that Joker was a wild hit. It caused a lot of debate. And Edwin and I are going to continue that debate because we want to take a movie that just happened only a few years ago that's still sort of hot and fresh in people's memories, and we're going to debate it. So uh, next week, get ready for Defend This Movie. Edwin will be defending. I will be prosecuting. And uh, you make up your minds about what you think. We have blood bath. Thank you, everybody. As always, have a great week, Ashley. Thank you for being on the show. I'll talk to everybody in two weeks. Bye. Bye.